I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as we make our way uh, through this letter penned by the Apostle Paul uh, to the churches in Corinth. I'd like to read to us the first uh, 10 verses uh, there in chapter 2. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, we thank you uh, for your word, for the power it conveys through the Holy Spirit. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would create faith in our hearts, that you would strengthen our hope in the resurrection in the day in which you will make all things new and that you will grant to us hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, you'll recall that the church in Corinth was plagued with many problems. And although the Apostle Paul had a laundry list of very serious sins to address as he pens this letter, the first one that he takes up was the sin of division within the church. You may recall that there were various factions that were each claiming particular leaders within the church, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even Christ himself. And they were giving exclusive loyalty to these men and quarreling amongst themselves. I mean, we we may wonder what on earth were they picking particular leaders for, and perhaps it was something as simple as their preaching style that they preferred, and yet they claimed exclusive loyalty to them. Well, Paul, back there in chapter 1, first showed how foolish such behavior was in light of the fact that Christ is not divided. He shows how, even how although there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, only one mediator, one king and head of his church, who gave himself for us and unites us to himself so that we might be part of his body. And so he, shows, he showed there, first and foremost, that because Christ is one, his body ought to be one. And yet that, that got the Apostle Paul thinking about the content of the gospel as he reminded them of the fact that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so the Apostle Paul emphasized the fact that it was this good news of the gospel which united them together to which he was called as an apostle to proclaim. He would proclaim that 
that message of salvation, not with words of eloquent wisdom, as he says there in verse 17 of chapter 1, lets the cross of Christ be emptied of his power, of its power. And so Paul insists that the content of the gospel be front and center, not his eloquence or rhetoric employed. And that really is what took up the rest of chapter 1 as Paul went on to talk about the content of the gospel, that although it appeared as, as foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews, to those who believe it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. And to further prove that point, Paul asked his audience to consider the, the makeup of the congregation at the church in Corinth. He says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are rich or of noble birth. It's demonstrated in the fact that it is the gospel that is the power of God's salvation, not what man can bring to the table. And then to further convince his audience that it is the content of the gospel that should be front and center, Paul, in the beginning of our passage today, recounts the the manner in which he came to them at first as he went uh, proclaiming the gospel, or as he calls it here, the testimony of God when he was there at Corinth. Notice he says that he didn't come proclaiming this testimony of God with lofty speech. The Apostle Paul didn't use highfalutin language meant to impress his listening audience to tickle their ears. He said he didn't come proclaiming this testimony with wisdom. Now, again, the Apostle Paul is going to go, go on to contrast true wisdom with false counterfeit wisdom. And that's what, how we ought to understand this word used here in verse 1. We might uh, paraphrase so-called wisdom. The Apostle Paul didn't use the wisdom of the world as he proclaimed the testimony of God. He goes on in verse 2 to say, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand the Apostle Paul here to be saying that he only preached on the doctrine of the atonement or that he somehow restricted the, uh, his message to only that of uh, the significance of the crucifixion of Christ. I think the Apostle Paul could say uh, after a year and a half with the saints of Corinth that he did not shrink from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And so how ought we to understand Paul's language here when he says that he only decided to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified? Perhaps a better way to translate this is, I did not determine to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the only thing that the Apostle Paul was going to preach for sure was the message of the cross. The message of the cross, which of course is shorthand for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, as well as our union together with him. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding his audience that he didn't let his listening audience determine the message, but rather his message was predetermined by his Lord who sent him there. He was not ashamed of the message of the cross, despite the fact that it was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, because to those who believe, it was the power and wisdom of God. And so this is in stark contrast, of course, to the men who uh, had made names for themselves in Corinth, the so-called sophists, 
which literally can be translated the wise guys, as they, as they named themselves, who used their so-called wisdom for the purpose of self-promotion. You see, they would come into town, and they would confidently strut into town, and they would challenge others to a debate. And they would let their audience determine the subject of the debate. And Paul says, no, I came with my message predetermined. I'm going to preach to you about the foolishness of a crucified Christ. And that's the power of God. And by using their plausible words of wisdom, the sophists would be able to win over their audience. And so you see the purpose of this earthly wisdom, as Paul calls it, the wisdom of this age. The purpose of the earthly wisdom is all for self-promotion. The sophists would come and use their eloquence, their persuasive, uh, their persuasive words, their highfalutin language in order to gain wealth, power, and prestige. Wealth, power, and prestige. And if we take all of those words and boil it down to one concept, it's this, glory. They wanted glory for themselves, and they used their rhetoric in order to obtain it. And so in stark contrast to that, we see the Apostle Paul reminding his audience that when he came to them, he didn't use lofty wisdom. He didn't use the uh, sophistry. But rather, he says in verse 3, he came in weakness, he came in fear, and he came in trembling. Now, it's interesting that when we go back and we read Acts chapter 18, there's nothing there which explicitly suggests that Paul was somehow particularly distraught when he came to Corinth. And we might wonder and speculate, what is it that caused the Apostle Paul to come in weakness and in fear and trembling? Some commentators suggest that perhaps he was experiencing some type of illness. Perhaps this was his thorn in the flesh that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You have to remember that the Apostle Paul, as he made his way from Asia into Macedonia, down into, uh, into Greece, that from town to town he experienced imprisonment, beatings, riots, and he was on the run going from town to town as, as, uh, as uh, riots would ensue and he began preaching the gospel. And so certainly, just on an earthly level, you have to appreciate that when the Apostle Paul stepped up to proclaim the gospel, there had to be some sort of fear and trepidation that he experienced. But perhaps also it was just a sense of the weightiness of his task to proclaim the gospel of salvation, to proclaim the crucified Christ. Certainly as a preacher, I can appreciate the weakness the fear and the trembling that accompanies being a proclaimer of that message. But regardless of of what Paul was experiencing when he had come to Corinth, it's clear to see that that Paul's delivery style did not live up to the expectations. He wasn't even willing to play the game together with the sophists. And that's why I think those in Corinth were so disappointed with him. That's why he would have a reputation that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 10, where they say of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. See, again, he refused to engage with the sophistry, with the eloquence and rhetoric of of those men who had made made a name for themselves, who sought to bring glory to themselves and start contrast the apostle Paul in weakness, fear and trembling, 
proclaim the foolish message of a crucified Christ, knowing that that is the power of God and to, unto salvation. It's the content of the message, not its delivery, that ultimately saves souls. And I think for a minister and for a preacher, this is extremely comforting. To know that even at my worst, even when I'm delivering the absolute worst sermon I've ever done, if the content comes through, God will work through me, through the power of his Holy Spirit. That is extremely comforting. But it's also extremely humbling, knowing that even though he may work through me at my worst, At my best, he works despite me. So it's not the the delivery, it's the content. This is not a sales pitch. This is the proclamation of a risen Christ. And the whole point that Paul says, the whole reason why Paul says it's not about the, 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 the way in which delivered, but it's the content, is so that our faith would not be in the wisdom of men. You see, some people are such gifted communicators that they can convince us of almost anything. I mean, just look at the world. Just turn on the television. Just, you know, go watch an infomercial for an hour and and see if you don't call that number to order whatever they're trying to sell. There are people who are so gifted. Think of Madison Avenue and, and the ads that we are constantly hit with. All of this is designed to get us to do something, and they use eloquence, they use rhetoric, they use wit, and all of these things in order to emotionally manipulate us so that we make these decisions. Beloved Lord, if I get you to do something on an emotional, if I just manipulate you from rhetoric, then I have failed as a minister. People in the world can convince us of doing almost anything. But think about this. This is the message that the Apostle Paul was tasked, to which all ministers of the gospel are tasked. That God became a man so that he could die. And now he invites you to take up your cross so that you can live. That's the message of the gospel in a nutshell. First of all, who would ever think of that? Who would ever come up with a message like that? That God became a man so that he could die, and now he invites you to take up your cross so that you could live. No one would ever even come up with that, let alone believe that. On their own. But you see, the fact that people believe that message, the fact that, that faith is created in our hearts by this seemingly foolish, implausible message must be a work of the Spirit of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul says there in verse 4, that your faith would be in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, you'll notice that there's two things he contrasts here in verse 4. He contrasts the plausible speech of the the, the plausible words of wisdom versus the demonstration of the spirit of power. So there's plausibility versus proof. All that the wisdom of the world can offer you are plausible words. Well, that sounds plausible. That sounds reasonable. You're offering my best life now? Sure. Sign me up. Versus, not plausibility, but proof through a seemingly implausible message that God became man so that we might live. That's how faith is created in our hearts. And that's what we're putting our faith in, the power of of the Holy Spirit. 
So the Apostle Paul, after talking about the, the way in which he proclaimed his message to them, so that faith was created in their hearts, not through his own eloquence, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he then goes on to talk about this, the type of wisdom that he does promote. It's important to note that Paul, when he's talking about wisdom here, he's not opposed to wisdom per se. He is simply contrasting true wisdom from God versus false, the false counterfeit wisdom of this world. And so he says in verse 6 that they do impart wisdom among the mature. It's an interesting use of uh, choice of terms that Paul uses here. He says we impart it amongst the mature. And perhaps here there's a bit of sarcasm in his speech. Keep in mind, the church is divided amongst itself. There are various factions within the church. And no doubt, each and every faction saw themselves as the spiritually mature and the others as those who were immature. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds his audience that, as I'll say actually in chapter 3, that the very fact that they were divided amongst themselves, claiming Paul or Apollos or other leaders within the church, showed that they were not mature, but actually that they were acting like babies. As he says in chapter 3, I, had, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people as the flesh, as infants in Christ. You're acting in an infantile manner. And so Paul here, by use of this term mature, asserts that only those who see the wisdom of God displayed in the cross are the ones who are really mature. Only the ones who see that, the, 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 that glory is achievable through the power of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, those are the ones who have, who have obtained a spiritual maturity. So the Apostle Paul says, we do speak wisdom, and yet it is not a wisdom of this age. Now, when the Apostle Paul talks about this age, he's referring to what he calls elsewhere the present evil age. As character, which is characterized by sin and hostility to God. It is this fallen world and the wisdom of the world that ultimately Paul says you cannot know God. And this is in contrast to the age which is to come, as he says in Ephesians 1.21, which is nothing less than the new heavens and new earth. And so Paul says we do not speak of a wisdom that you can get here on the earth, a wisdom that comes from the flesh, a wisdom that comes from fallen man, but rather we speak a wisdom that comes from heaven itself, that is breaking into this present age as God reveals it to us through his spirit. So the wisdom of the age is not what Paul imparts, nor nor is it the wisdom of the rulers of this age. Now, when he speaks of the rulers of this age, he's talking about the power brokers, the, the, those that he, he, he previously is characterized as the wise, as the scribes, as the debaters of this age, as those who are powerful, as those who have noble birth, the movers and shakers of this world, those people who have made a name for themselves, who can boast in their own glory. But Paul says that glory is fading, and it is doomed to pass away. That is not the wisdom that Paul speaks of. Rather, he speaks of a secret and hidden wisdom, as he says in verse 7. Literally, he speaks in a mystery. Now, that word that the Apostle Paul uses, mystery, simply means something that once was concealed but has now been revealed. In other words, when the Apostle Paul speaks of a mystery, 
it's not all that mysterious, at least for those who believe. Now, for those who do not believe, it is a pure mystery. It goes right over their head. They have no idea. Uh, it's completely hidden from them. And yet, for those of, of, of us who believe, the mystery is nothing more than just the gospel of salvation that has been revealed to us now. And so this mystery, as Paul says, is actually part of God's eternal decree. Look there in verse 7. It says this mystery, or this, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed. Now, when we think of God's eternal decree, oftentimes we think of God's decree being ultimately for his glory. Right? I mean, that is one of the, the, the solas of the Reformation, the Soli Deo Gloria, that everything at the end of the day, all of God's decree is for his own glory. And that is absolutely true. And yet the thing I want you to appreciate today with regard to God's decree for his glory is that part of him glorifying himself is, is actually him glorifying us together with Christ. Did you notice that in verse 7? which God decreed before the ages, for whose glory? For our glory. See, God glorifies himself by glorifying his people together with Christ. This is that mystery. This is the secret and hidden wisdom that comes from above, that glory is obtainable by having faith in Jesus Christ. This is the glory that we ought to seek as opposed to that counterfeit glory that the, that the wisdom of, the, of this age offers you. So if you're going to boast, the Apostle Paul says, boast in the fact that you know the Lord and that he will glorify you one day together with his son. And so we have a choice. There's the glory that the world offers us, the glory which comes from man, or the glory which comes from God. This choice even faced people when Jesus was here on earth. We read about uh, the authorities in John chapter 12 that actually believed in Jesus. That is, they gave, they gave mental consent to, to what he was saying. They thought, they believed, this is the Messiah. And yet, we read in John chapter 12, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue For they loved, John says, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How tragic that these men were able even to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, but they, for fear of man, would not confess it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose the glory and prestige that comes from man. And they loved that more than the glory which ultimately would come from God through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if we want to seek the glory that comes from God, oftentimes we have to forfeit the glory which comes from man. That's all that that bit about Jesus saying, if anyone wants to follow after me, take up your cross, deny yourself, deny the momentary, fading, passing glory so that you can have an eternal weight of glory reserved for you in heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on in, in chapter 15 when, he talk, when he's talking to those who are denying our resurrection, literally denying our glorification at the last day. The Apostle Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Well, because we constantly need to forfeit the glory which comes from man. And if we're not going to be glorified at the last day, at the resurrection, then we ought to be pitied more than anyone else because we've taken up our cross daily and followed after our Lord. But of course, we know that Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and that we will be glorified together with him. This is part of God's eternal decree to glorify us together with him. And so this is the glory which we ought to seek. This is the wisdom which comes from above. You want to experience glory? Trust in Christ. Now, this wisdom that comes from above, the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this world understood. None of the rulers of this age even comprehended this, this hidden wisdom from God. The ignorance of the wisdom of God was most clearly demonstrated when Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, conspired to put Jesus to death. And yet in so doing, they did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Even Satan himself, who entered the heart of Judas, was merely a pawn in the eternal plan of God for Jesus Christ to to obtain our salvation and our eventual glorification. So you've got to appreciate the irony here in that the rulers of the age, in following their own wisdom, actually accomplished the salvation of the elect and the eventual glorification of the elect together with the Lord. And I think that's seen in the way in which Paul characterizes Jesus. Notice what he says here. They would not have crucified, who? The Lord of glory. Even at his lowest point of humiliation, of humbling himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to the point of death on a cross, Even at that point, Paul can give Christ this exalted title. He's the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. And and I think that's seen, especially in the the Gospel of John, as Jesus talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, which literally referred to being lifted up on the cross. And yet that same Greek word can be translated, not just lifted up, but exalted. And so here we see very clearly that the road to glory is through suffering. The road to glory is through suffering. That's what the wisdom of God teaches us. And that is in stark contrast to the wisdom of this world, which Martin Luther, in 1519, as he penned what is called the Heidelberg Disputation, was able to identify what the Apostle Paul is talking about here when he contrasts what he called the theology of glory with the theology of the cross. The theologians of glory had a lot of confidence in themselves. They had a lot of confidence in their good works and in their free will and in their ability to be able to see God through their own powers and and experience glory in the here and now. Martin Luther says those men do not deserve to be called theologians. The one who deserves to be called a theologian, Martin Luther said, is the one who sees God as he reveals himself through suffering and through the cross. It is through suffering that we ultimately obtain glory and the vision of God through through our risen Lord 
Jesus Christ. Now, this is completely counterintuitive to the natural man. And that's why Paul previously said, this is folly to the world. This is completely counterintuitive to man who judges things based upon appearance only. You see, the Lord has given us eyes of faith to be able to grasp the unseen things. And that's why Paul goes on to quote, paraphrasing from Isaiah 64, when he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. See, again, no one would ever come up with this on their own. No one would ever imagine such a thing. This is completely implausible. It is completely unseen through the natural eyes. It is completely unimaginable. And yet these are the eternal blessings which God has prepared for those who love him. And those things, the the eternal blessings, the eternal glory that we will experience together with God, those things are for us. And God has prepared them for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whatever you see with your eyes is going to be shaken, as Hebrews 12 uh, tells us. Whatever you see with your eyes is going to be burnt up and dissolved. And yet what we see with the eyes of faith, that is what is eternal and unchangeable. And these things have been revealed to us, verse 10, in the here and now through the Holy Spirit. You see, what was hidden from the wise of the world, what was hidden from the discerning of this world, God has begun to make known to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, wherever the Spirit goes, he brings heaven with him. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us and he has, he's granted us this wisdom. He's given us the eyes of faith so that we can see and perceive uh, the truth of God as it is revealed in the gospel. And we begin even now to experience these heavenly blessings that no eye has seen, no ear heard, and has never even entered into the heart of man. This is what Jesus was thankful for in Matthew chapter 11 as some of his disciples began to get it as some of his disciples began to uh, realize that they were experiencing the powers of the age which is to come. And Jesus says a prayer in Matthew chapter 11. We read, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God has chosen hide it from the wise of this world, but to reveal it to us who are characterized as little children. And this idea of of having the wisdom of God revealed to us is completely freeing. Because Jesus goes on in Matthew 11 to say, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The revelation of that wisdom from above is rest for our souls. So as we conclude our passage today, may the Lord teach us his wisdom so that we would not desire the glory that comes from man, but that we would eagerly anticipate the glory that comes from God 
as it is revealed through the suffering and death of Christ and his glorification. Amen?